I don't know if you've noticed over the past few weeks, we're going back now four or five weeks, the theme that's sort of been unintentionally followed as we've shared each morning. And this theme that has it's unintentionally come about has really been burdening my heart regarding our fellowship here, our small body of believers here as Grace Christian Church. And that theme that's been coming out has been the idea of family, being the family of God, not doing the family of God, being the family of God. And Father's Day last week, which was a great blessing, celebrating fathers as we looked at the, the, the heart of God from, I believe, Luke 15. And it was a great time of fellowship and sharing in the meals and the fellowship of enjoying each other's company. And, and as a family, it'd be nice to actually start doing more of those things, of, of having barbecues in a park, of, of fellowshipping with one another, of, of meeting together outside of a Sunday morning service or outside of a Wednesday or Tuesday or Monday night Bible study and just spend time together sharing food, sharing fellowship and for praying for one another. But we've had this family idea that's come over the last several weeks because before Father's Day, we looked at what it meant to, from 1 John chapter 2, what it meant to live as a child of God, how to live as a young man in God's family, how to live as an adult, as a grown-up, as a child of God. Pastor Ben came and shared with us about relating or how God relates to us as a father. So this idea of family has just been coming about and, and been burdening my heart. And, and as we look at the scriptures today, we're going to look at another aspect of family, which I think promotes and, and teaches about the great privilege that has been bestowed upon you and I as God's children. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Kenny, Kenny Lowe and I have been reading through one chapter, one, 1 Peter chapter 1 over the past week. We just read the same chapter every day and we pick out one verse that's, that speaks to us. And I'm going to read for you the, the passage that God challenged my heart with, and that is from verse 17 to verse 19. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read this passage and then I'll open in a word of prayer. We read this from the NIV. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, uh, sorry, a, a lamb without defect or blemish, or blemish or defect. Allow me to pray, allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to hear from your spirit. And I ask, Lord, you will teach us. Reveal yourself to us now. May we be sensitive to what you show us about ourselves and about our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, for those of you who may not know much about Peter and, and who he's writing to and why he's writing to them, the church was under tremendous persecution. 
and the church has been scattered all throughout Asia Minor. So Peter is writing to the believers. It's called the diaspora, the scattering of the saints in Asia Minor, which is now known as modern Turkey. He's writing to give them a message of hope, even amidst dire and intense persecution. He wants to give them comfort in the face of huge trial and give them a message of direction despite the huge opposition they face. Now, what you'll notice in this chapter, or at least this is what I've noticed as I was reading through this chapter, you have, for example, with jokes. I'm not a good joke teller. I'm not a comedian at all. But you have the setup for the punchline. In boxing, you've got the jab for the hook. Or for, for Ray, in the 2010s, you've got the whip and the nene, apparently. That's my 2010s reference for you. It will never happen again. But you have the setup, and then you have the thing. So it's because of this, this takes place. Because of who you are, this is how it's the responsibility or the expectation from you. And in chapter one, you have three setups, and you have two punchlines. The third punchline is the beginning of chapter two. For example, in verses three to 12, you have this comfort that is given in Jesus Christ. And you see that in, in verse three. In verse five, you have the, the protection that is given to you in God. You are shielded by God's power. In verses 10 and 11, you are told about the spirit that indwells that angels desire to look into. So you have this setup. This is who you are in Christ. This is what God the Father has done for you. This is how the spirit is working in you. That's the setup. Then when you get to verse 14 and 15 down to verse 16, you have the punchline. Be holy. Be sober. Be aware. Be obedient. This is what God has given you. Therefore, be this. Be set apart. Be sanctified. Walk in accordance with God's word, with God's heart, and with God's desire. That was the first setup and the first punchline. I want us to look at the second setup today. And that is found in verse 17. You see, this setup, I was talking with Pastor Roger on Friday, and he was telling me that a lot of the people that he works with and deals with in his area is a lot of fatherless homes. And so a lot of his ministry is teaching men how to be men. I'm not saying that a single parent can't do a good job raising your child. Please do not misunderstand me. Please, I'm not trying to attack or, or mock anybody. But this idea of, of, of a good work ethic, of respect of women, of how a man conducts themselves with integrity because there are so many fatherless homes in his area, they get it from social media. They get it from the movies. They get it from music. They get it from the culture that has a very negative view and labels masculinity as toxic. Thus, when I read in verse 17, these first few words, he says, since you call on a father, stop right there. 
since you call on a father, this figure that you can look to, this person you can rely upon, this one who is the giver of life and affection and love whom you and I as the children of God have the privilege to call upon as Father. That is one of the most amazing privileges granted to you and I who believe in Jesus Christ and have trusted in Him for the salvation of your souls. Think about this. Since you call on a Father, a Father who is there, a Father who is present. I read in the Bible and I read this, God speaking, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. That's God speaking in Genesis 28, 15, when he's talking to Jacob. What an amazing promise to hear from the Father who is there, the promise of his presence. What does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission? He says, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The Father who is there. Not only is he present, he is actively present. He is the Father who hears who inclines his ear to his people, to you, to me. I read the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. That's in Psalm 34, verse 17. I read, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. The Father who is present, the Father who is there, is also the Father who hears. That's from Psalm 40, verse 1. Not only does, is He there, not only does He hear, He is the Father who understands. He understands you better than you understand yourself. He understands your issues and your problems better than you can get a grasp on. He understands the isolation that you feel. He understands the difficulties that you encounter. He understands the doubts and the inadequacies that can just overwhelm you at times. He understands those. The Bible says, is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not life, a long life, bring understanding? This is from Job chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. I mean, this is the question Job asks, but then he says this, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. He knows what's going on. He knows how you feel. I read, he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities in regarding his conduct to Israel and did not destroy them. And then you read this, he understands. He remembered that they were but flesh a passing breeze that does not return. That's Psalm 78, verse 38 and 39. I want you to get a grasp. Since we call on a father, 
This is who he is. He is the God who is there. He is the God who hears. He is the God who understands. But he is also not only the God, God the Father who instructs. Who instructs. My dad was quite an amazing sportsman. I think that's where myself and all my brothers got our amazing physical ability from. Well, and my mum, because she could really throw something at you. But I remember my dad just watching him, him teaching me how to tackle people. Then I got to try that on my brothers, and I still got hurt. But then my brother, so I learned a lot of these things. So, yeah, a God who instructs, he would see me play and say, you should do this and should do this. And he would give me counsel on how to improve my game. We have a father who instructs us. And you know what he says to us? He says, keep all my decrees. Keep all my laws and follow them. Why? Because I am the Lord. That's in Leviticus 19, verse 37. You read the God who instructs, he says this, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, he says, seek righteousness. He says, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. That's from Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. So he's the God who instructs. He's the Father who instructs. I'm not talking about the fathers that, please forgive my language, that are considered deadbeat. This is a father that desires to be involved and desires to be a part of your life, desires to play a part in your nurture and in your growth because of his great love for you. And he is a father, which I think is one of the most amazing things that we can address the Father that we can address personally as Father, as Abba, as we read in the Bible in, in Romans 8.15, that we cry, Abba, Father, and the amount of theologians, the amount of preachers, the amount of teachers who all say the same thing, Abba is that affectionate term of Dad. And he responds to that, to Dad, my heavenly Dad, and that we are known by the Father as his child. You should all know 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. That should all be written on the table of your heart. The manner of love bestowed upon you and I, that we should be called the children of God. That is a fun that we can address as a father. And because of that, we can now approach God's throne with grace and with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. It's a lot of information, I know, but I want you to be able to grasp the reality of with, since, since we call on our Father, since we call on a Father, we should know who our Father is what our Father does, how our Father inputs into each of our lives. Because we have a Father we can call on. It is a, it is a truth that I often overlook and take for granted because with my own Father, whom I love dearly, and was, he worked hard. And it was, I, I, was, I never felt unloved in my family. I never felt, I mean, maybe by my brothers, but you're supposed to feel that way by your brothers. They let you know how your, your, your position in the totem pole, they let you know. 
But I know with my dad, I felt sometimes if there was a consequence, I would feel apprehensive about approaching him because he always worked so hard. And because I didn't want to bother him because he worked so hard. And so there was this not intentional distance where I did my thing and I made sure not to bother my dad. But that's not the issue I have with my heavenly father. That's not the issue that I have with the creator of the universe. Such fears are thrown aside in the relationship I, share, I now share with him as my heavenly father through Jesus Christ. Since we call on a father, and he says, what does it do? Here's the rest of the setup. Who judges each person's work impartially. Who judges each person's work impartially. Now, there are two really important things I want you to grasp from this phrase here about the fatherhood of God. Here's the first one. He judges. He judges. But I want you to look past that word, because whenever we hear judges, we're like, ooh, 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 ooh. Sorry, Alyssa. She's, she's trying not to laugh. But that's what it's like when we hear the word judge or somebody judges. You know what that tells me? tells me he's involved. That's what it tells me. He judges because he has concern and care for that which concerns him. You know what concerns him? You. You were concerned by God the Father that he sent his son to die for you. That's how concerned he is. And that as a father, when he sees his children making bad choices, when he sees his children doing things they shouldn't be doing, then he judges such things. He involves himself. Where fatherless homes are abundant, where strong male role models are criticized, and good men are now the exception, not the rule. That's what society says today. I am comforted, I am comforted by this reality that he, my heavenly father, has not left me to my own devices. He hasn't. He remains involved with me. And he doesn't remain silent in matters of life, of existence, and of purpose. Several verses, once again, that we should have written on the tables of our heart. We should, we should know we should know because it shows the father heart of God towards me and towards you. In Psalm 138, you read, your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Who are the works of his hands? You. And so the psalmist writes, please, your love endures. Do not abandon this work. What does Philippians 1.6 say? Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's involved, whether you like it or not. He's involved with you. The other one you should know is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpieces. We are his works of art created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. 
And because he is involved, I know that in this case, the judgment of my father who judges impartially does so, and here's the second thing, in fairness. Yes, he judges, but he judges fairly. He is fair. We read, um, we read that, okay, well, before I read, who can tell me what the most well-known Bible verse is in the world? It's actually not John 3.16. People know the reference of John 3.16, but it's not actually John 3.16. Pardon? No, it is not Jesus wept, although that is the shortest Bible verse. I find it interesting because I've heard this spoken by Christian and non-Christian alike, and usually it is done to silence a conversation. What did you say, Jono? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. In the King James, it says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. That is the King James, obviously. But that is the one that most everybody knows. Atheists know, Buddhists know, and like I said, it's used to silence an argument. It's used to stop things in their tracks. But the fairness of God is such that after this statement made in Matthew chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus actually teaches this, that if you are going to judge, then be prepared to be measured by the judgment that you use. So if I'm going to stand here and I'm going to measure Caris against a ruler and say, okay, Caris, you're four foot three. No, she's not that short. But when I say to Caris, this is your measurement here, and then I have to take that same measurement and measure it up against myself. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, it says this, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. See, this is an age of where everything is subjective. For example, I remember a young man who said to me about the authenticity and the historical accuracy of the Bible, and he said, that can't be trusted because it doesn't meet this criteria, this criteria, this criteria, and he gave me about seven criterias. And I thought, that's a really interesting observation that you made. Then I asked him this question. When you have your criterias laid out to measure the Bible up against, do you do that against every historical document that you encounter? And he said to me this, and I appreciate his intellectual honesty and integrity. He said, no, I don't. I'm far stricter on the Bible because I disagree with what the Bible says. But that's what happens, isn't it? We like to change the game. We like to move the goalposts. We like to accommodate what we think as opposed to having a fair standard one for all. And and for many of us today, it seems that society is traveling that way. See, the standard God judges all mankind by, the very word of God, his moral law, the 10 commandments is the same standard that he applied to Jesus. Not just in outward action, but even in regards to Jesus' inward attitude. He was consistent in how he assessed. Why? Because he is fair. When you read the summation of all of God's commandments, 
as reflected in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. What does it say? That upon these two laws hang all the law, all the Ten Commandments can be summed up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. That's it. That's the standard. When I talk with people and they say to me things like, it is unfair that God condemns on the basis of sexuality. It is unfair that God condemns on the basis of your thought life. It is unfair that God condemns on the basis of a mistake made. That is so unfair. And I learned from Tim Hawkins, the pastor emeritus from St. Paul's Anglican Church in Castle Hill, his, his response is always this, God doesn't condemn on the basis of your sexuality. He doesn't condemn on the basis of your thought life. He doesn't condemn on the basis of the mistakes that you made. He condemns on the basis of not fulfilling the two greatest commandments, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. Because all of those other things are the symptoms, are the outworkings of our lack of love for God and our lack of love for others. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. And so what we see in Jesus, who was held to that standard, he exemplifies the beauty of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. The beauty of those verses is demonstrated in his life. When, when he cleared his father's house of the merchants and of the money makers and said, my father's house is called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves and John. And, and you know, when he does this, he's exemplifying loving God as well as loving others. When he called out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in Matthew 15 and calls them, you vipers and you hypocrites, that's him loving God and him loving others. When he welcomed outcasts, whether the sinful woman that washed his feet in Luke 7, whether the leper that fell down before him and asked to be healed in Matthew 8, whether it's the annoying children in Matthew 19. He exemplifies the, the love of God and the love of others. When he prayed for forgiveness for the very people that nailed him to a cross, when he forgave a thief and said, today you will be with me in paradise, when he was forsaken by his father, taking upon himself the sin of the world, yours and mine, he was demonstrating a love of God and a love of of others. He is the God of the Bible who is, if not more, the fairest of all there is and all there has ever been. He is fair. And see, this is, this is the setup. This is the jab. This is the whip. This is for us to be stirred because what does he do? He goes, because of this, because you call on a father who is involved, because you call on a father who hears, who is present, who understands, who instructs, because you have a father that is fair, then he gives you the hook. And he says this, he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 
If this is everything it is, this is what we are expected to do. Live out our time here as foreigners with reverent fear. You see, the Bible clearly lays out as Christians, we are strangers and pilgrims. You know what a stranger and a pilgrim is? It means you're cruising on through. It means you're not residing. It means you're like just you're just passing. You're like the cowboy, the old, you know, just just moseying on through on his horse, stop at a town, do a scene, then carry on. That's us. That's us. Why? Because every single person in this room will enter the valley of the shadow of death. There is no escaping it. That is where we are going. And on our journey, as we live, how many people are under the age of 20 here? Can you raise your hand? How many people are under the age of 40? Wow. Who, who's my age and over? 50 and over? 50 and over? Okay, okay. You see, we're all in different stages of that journey, aren't we? And what's fascinating is that as strangers and pilgrims, we are eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. We're eagerly awaiting for our bodies to be freed of this mortal coil. Therefore, we are supposed to redeem our times or live in reverent fear. Uh, that's in Ephesians 5, by the way. Now, we know this. The Bible teaches this, and the Lord urges us. But why? Why am I to live as a foreigner? Why am I to redeem my time? Why am I to walk in a particular way if I am a child of God? You know why? You know why? Because of the price that was paid by God in order for you and I to avoid judgment, to avoid the consequence of our sin, to avoid the penalty of sin's condemnation. It's the price God paid in order for me as a sinner deserving of hell to be freed from that. Because you read these beautiful verses in verses 18 and 19, if you read with me, he goes, for you know, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. That word redeemed basically means to be purchased, to be bought, to be set free from. That you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. I'm just gonna stop there. You see, society in the West has moved along the lines of success being measured by accomplishments, being measured by income, being measured by popularity, being measured by possessions. And in each generation, the shift has sort of become more evident as, as, as you progress on your journey. I remember meeting with Pastor Chin Ake, and he introduced himself to me. I said, hello, Pastor. And he he, he, he actually referred to his name. He goes, he goes, in Asian culture, the family name comes first and the individual name comes after. And he goes, you know why that is, Joe? I says, no, bro. I just thought it's something that Asians do. And he goes, no, it's because in Asian culture, family is more important than the individual. And I was like, whoa, that's, 
That's good. That's good. But have you noticed in society now that the family is now considered secondary? Rights of families are being taken away. Even children themselves wanted to be able to distance himself from the collective to like, I want to be who I want to be. You can't tell me otherwise. Isn't that how society has progressed now? We have moved further and further away from the established institutions that God has set up as people search for themselves on their own personal journey. And like, I hear a lot of people complaining about millennials. Do I complain about millennials? Yes, because it's fun. But the reality is this, and I was speaking with my kids about this. Who raised that generation? Mine. I look at my generation and how we, and look, we were raised as a generation Xer. I understand, I understand how we were raised by boomers. My dad was a boomer, my mum was a boomer. They were born in the sort of early 50s. And we were raised in this standard of that family is important that family is important, family values is important, all this sort of stuff. And I think my generation rebelled against such things as we became parents ourselves. And we started introducing things like participation trophies. Everybody gets a medal. Why? Because like me, you didn't get any medals. You know, and so, and we have this thing where it's like, okay, now everybody, and now it's, it's, it's ended up going to the extreme because you and I as sinners always take things to the extreme. We take things to the extreme. Now, it's gone to such an extreme now where everybody can be whatever they want to be. No, they can't. No, they can't. Anyone can be what they want to be because they feel like it. No, they can't. That's not the reality, but that's what we have introduced. So, but it, it's, see, I'm not attacking families because families are instituted by God. Families are a good thing. I'm not attacking what families stand for. But here's the reality which I have to be reminded of. My parents, as much as I love them, did not redeem me from the punishment of sin. My siblings, hey, Shah, I love you, as much as I love them, did not die for me so that I could be made right with God. My wife, whom I love immensely, did not die for me. She did not purchase my salvation by shedding her blood on a cross. My children, as much as I love them, did not sacrifice everything they had so that I could be made right with my heavenly Father, so that I can call on my Father. No, none of them are capable of or could ever do such a thing. That was my Lord Jesus Christ. You read in verse 19 that it is the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, that it is him and his sacrifice, his death on the cross, his giving of his own life for me. That is what made me right. That is what dealt with my problem of sin. He was the one who satisfied God's judgment and God's anger for God's payment. Do you remember what the payment for sin is? The payment of sin is death, but your death isn't good enough. My death isn't good enough. It couldn't satisfy the propitiation of God's wrath and holiness. It was only Jesus. And so when, when Jesus says, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life in John 3.16, as, as, as Nat said, 
Well, you know what that means? When Jesus says it, that means it's legit. It's legit. When John says of Jesus Christ, he who has the Son has life in 1 John 5, 11, and 12, it's legit. It means it's the real deal. When Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that means it's legit. It means you can't change that because it's Jesus Christ. When Peter says that when we suffer according to God's will, we will commit ourselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good in 1 Peter 4, 19, that's legit. That's legit. It's the real deal because it is in Jesus Christ. Why? Why is it legit? Because of who Christ is, that when he rose from the dead, everything he taught, everything he promised, everything that he performed, everything he did, his whole being, when he rose from the dead, showed to the world 2,000 years ago, even to today, that he is the real deal. That he is the savior of humanity. And if you know that, if you know that, it's, 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 it's more than just knowing it. If you know that, that's a wonderful thing. That's a good place to start, that if you know that, know that he is involved, know that he judges impartially, know that he listens and, and, and know that he hears. If you know that, that's wonderful, but it's what you do with what you know. I know a lot of stuff that is good for me. I know I should be eating healthy, but I don't do it. I know I shouldn't jump off roofs and houses and things. Doesn't stop me. I know I shouldn't go climbing on trees. It doesn't stop me. Yeah, but why? Because I can fall and hurt myself because eating's bad for me. Like we know a lot of stuff, but unless you act on what you know, it means nothing. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, the Bible teaches this, that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God so that you can call on him as father. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can know up here, but the invitation God gives each one of you is to say, Lord, I, I want to believe. See, believing, believing is, is one thing, but the way the Bible describes believe here is that if you believe it, you'll commit to it. My wife and I have been married nearly 30 years, and she believed that I love her, and that belief was demonstrated in the commitment that was made when I said, I do, and when she said, I do, and when we worked out on things for the past 30 years. That's the believing that Jesus talks about in the Bible and that the Bible talks about, about committing yourself to wholeheartedly. And so if, if, you, if you want to be made right with God, if you want to be able to reach out and call out to Him as your Father, then all you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is pray. And all I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just, if you are interested, if you are interested in, in committing yourself to Jesus, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand if you're interested. And if not, that's fine. But I do, I do challenge you with this. I do challenge you with this. 
that if you're wrestling with those things, thank you, I see your hand. If you're wrestling with those things, then I would encourage you to seek out, talk to me, talk to your friends who might be here, talk to some of the leaders, uh, Pastor John and Pastor Ben and, and other leaders that are here. Just have a chat. Just have a chat to find out who this Jesus is. And if you want to commit your life to Jesus, just, just pray with me now. Just repeat after me, and then, and then I'm going to ask my sisters to come up, and we'll, we'll close in a song. Just say, Father, I thank you that you love me so much. I thank you that even though I'm a sinner, your love was shown to me in Jesus. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be born of a virgin and, and live a sinless life. Thank you that, that he gave his life freely to die for me, the death I deserved. Thank you that, that you rose again the third day and that by me trusting in you, I can have forgiveness of sin. Father, I ask for you to take control of my life. I ask for you to be the Lord not only in my own heart, but in my whole being. Father, I ask you to save me from my sin and make me your child. Thank you for hearing my cry. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that with me today, I would encourage you, come and let me know. Let somebody else know as well. But I would, I would love to catch up with you just to talk and to pray with and to, to encourage you. Because like I've said in the past, there are two times when the angels sing. One was when Jesus was born, and the other was when someone was born again to become a child of God. So with that, we'll be upstanding and we'll sing our last song. Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that because of Him, we can call on you as our Father. I thank you that you are a Father who is present, a Father who hears, who understands, who instructs, and whom we can address as Father. Thank you so much. You're a God who judges impartially, that you're involved with each and every one of us. And that now, as we sit in your presence, as we just stand here and marvel at your glory, may you continue to stir our hearts to live our lives here as strangers, as pilgrims, to live in reverent fear of you not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. So we ask for you to dismiss us. And as we move from here, we will understand that you are our God, you are our King, you are our Father, and we have the privilege of being called the children. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said,